So we've learned so far from the first paragraph that God is supreme. Civil authority or jurisdiction is a divine institution instituted by God. The civil magistrates are under God and it's their job to administer God's rule over civil societies at various levels. Civil magistrates are to serve God for His glory and the public good. Civil magistrates are to support and encourage good and punish evil. That's how they administer God's own rule in a given society. Now we're going to move to the last two paragraphs and I've entitled them Paragraph 2, The Christian's Participation in Civil Affairs and Paragraph 3, The Christian's Obligation in Civil Affairs. So we have participation and we have obligation. Within the idea of participation, we'll address what Christians may do with regard to civil affairs. When it comes to our obligation, we're addressing uh, what we ought to do. Where there's a may, you can do it, or you can not do it. Where there is an ought, then you have an obligation. And so that's how we're going to see these final two paragraphs. So we'll begin with the first, which is actually the second. The Christian's participation in civil affairs. I'll read the paragraph now. It is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto, in the management whereof, as they ought especially to maintain justice and peace, according to the wholesome laws of each kingdom and commonwealth, so for that end they may lawfully now, under the New Testament, wage war upon just and necessary occasions. We need to remember again the historical context in which our confession was written, not because we want to discredit its claims as if they were outdated, because truth is always truth regardless of of the time period, but it's helpful to ask why would this be included in a confession of faith or a statement of Christian doctrine? Why, why these matters of carrying out the office of a magistrate? Why the, 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 the idea of engaging in war? Some people would see that really beyond the scope of a, a Christian statement of faith. Why is it here? Well, as with all doctrinal statements... Assertions like this are usually made because at some point an opposing view has been put forth and has been popularized by somebody. And it's the same here. Remember that in the early days of the group known as the Particular Baptists, as we would now, we would now refer to ourselves as Reformed Baptists, but they were known as Particular Baptists from the very beginning, there were not many doctrinal differences between the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists. And if you have a copy of our confession that has the preface to the readers, at the beginning of it you'll see that our Baptist forefathers were making the attempt to say, hey, when it comes to foundational doctrinal truths, we're with you guys. There are some practical matters where we disagree, but we don't want to, to make it look like we're out to... to strike off a new course in doctrine and theological uh, distinction. They wanted to, to find solidarity and show solidarity. But one chief distinction, clearly seen by everybody, was that the particular Baptists were no longer sprinkling their infants. That's sort of hard to miss. They were administering the ordinance of baptism to many who had been sprinkled as infants and yet who had come to their churches. 
They were in that sense considered rebaptizers. Although we would say it wasn't so much of a rebaptism as it was an administration of actual baptism, an actual administration. But they were they were known as that. Those are some of those people who rebaptize adults who were sprinkled as infants. Well, there was another group who was also known for rebaptizing its members. And they got their name from that notion of baptizing someone again. They were called the Anabaptists. That means again baptizers. The Anabaptist groups of the 17th century were not monolithic, especially when it came to the idea of the civil magistrate. Some, like those of the Munster Rebellion, sought to set up their own civil kingdom on the earth, and they were willing to fight and willing to defend it violently. They were seditious and violent. Others, who were also Anabaptists, were opposed to the idea of civil engagement completely. Now, the last thing that our Baptist forefathers wanted was to be confused with the Anabaptists at either of these extremes. We're, we're not like those of M Munster. We're not going to start up a rebellion and try to overthrow the government. At the same time, we're not completely uh, retracted from society and, and, show, and have no participation. We, and these two paragraphs actually show the biblical middle ground between those two extremes. That's what they're trying to do. They're saying, we're, we are not them. Here's what we believe. Now then we might ask the question, is a confession of, of these two truths specifically, is it still needed today? If that was the historical context, is it, is it really even relevant in our culture today? Well, I would say it is. On first these grounds, there are still Anabaptist groups today who eschew all participation in civil affairs. They don't vote. They don't run for office. They don't go to war. Many of them refuse to defend their own homes, wives, and children on the same grounds uh, for which they refuse to, to participate in civil matters. Listen to the words of one man who considers himself an Anabaptist. And again, it's not monolithic, so I don't really know where he might fall in, in, on this scale. But he says, quote, It appears to me that there are two distinctives that characterize true Anabaptism from all the others, and they are one, separation from the world, and two, non-resistance to the evil person. The second distinctive of non-resistance would include the owning of a weapon for self-defense. He goes on and says, carrying a gun or knife in nearly all cases is to avoid persecution and to preserve one's life for the life of a family member when we are expressly commanded to lay down our lives for our enemies and to not retaliate against the evil person. For this very reason, Jesus states that very few will be able to enter the kingdom. Love of self, family, and goods will keep most so-called Christians out of heaven. Many will say, Lord, Lord, but Jesus says, I never knew you. The point I'm making is these beliefs still exist to this day. And, it, and the way this man speaks, this is the distinction between those who enter heaven and those who don't. Would you defend your family? Then you're not in. You're not a part of this thing we call Christianity. That still exists. On the other side, there are Christian or Protestant or evangelical groups who go to the other extreme. They would seem, or they would uh, at least seem to imply that the government is to be trusted and submitted to practically without exception. They would, believe, they would say or assert the flag deserves our allegiance. 
that our troops deserve our support simply because they signed up and were enlisted. Churches should have special services for the 4th of July, for Veterans Day, for Memorial Day. Every church should have an American flag outside and inside, and it better have the place of prominence anywhere near the Christian flag. And you see this. You you can see churches in our own area. The American flag is over the Christian flag. Well, why is that? Well, that's that's flag code. That's the way you're supposed to do it. If you fly it, it's got to be at the top. But that's sort of assumed in most Christian and evangelical circles that we have interacted in. You'll, you'll hear it said that America was founded as a nation built on Christian principles. Now, we would agree. The problem is that most of the people who say that don't realize that our founding fathers would probably start a civil war today if they saw what we call patriotism. They would have probably actually started it yesterday or tomorrow because they wouldn't begin a war on the Sabbath. But they would not put up with what we tend to call or think of as patriotism. This position seems to imply or would give the impression that to be a Christian is equated with participation in, allegiance to, and celebration of anything and everything that carries the name of our nation on it. Now, in between these extremes, there is the biblical picture of a Christian as a citizen in a civil society. The Bible neither demands nor forbids participation in civil affairs. Rather, it sets forth parameters for what participation might look like. So, again, the Christian's participation in civil affairs, I've broken this paragraph up into three headings, the Christian as magistrate, the magistrate as Christian, and then the Christian in war. First, the Christian as magistrate. The paragraph reads, It is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of magistrate when called thereunto. When we see words like lawful, we are asserting that means according to God's Word. According to God's Word, in line with God's Word, it is acceptable for Christians to accept and execute the office of magistrate when called thereunto. Now that word called, I'm assuming, I could be historically incorrect, I'm assuming that this this means um, sort of a a divine calling to vocation or a, a, a leading in this direction of work and not... You got a letter in the mail and the government wants you to come and be uh, the mayor. Uh, although, if that were to happen, biblically, and you wanted to do that, you could do that as a Christian. This means that if God gives a man the aspiration and gifts to work as a civil official, and providence opens the door for that man to enter that field, it is perfectly acceptable for him to do so. Christians can work for the government, and this goes for any level, police officer, sheriff's deputy, sheriff, mayor, governor, senator, congressman, president, at any level, a Christian, it's, per, it's a perfectly legitimate office or, or function. It's a perfectly legitimate job. I would encourage you to teach your children to say police officer, not the cops. Refer to them as police officers. That's, I, I teach my kids that just as a, a way of respect uh, for the office, not, not the man, but if you want to serve as a police officer or a sheriff's deputy, by all means, you can do it. As a matter of fact, Christians should make the very best public officers. Our confession references 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 2 and 4. You can turn there with me. 2 Samuel 23, 
verses 2 through 4. The reference is actually verse 23, but I'm going to read. Two through four. Did I say that correctly? The, the reference is verse three. I'm going to read two through four. In chapter 23. 2 Samuel 23, beginning at verse two. See there at the top, these are the last words of David. He's king. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout forth from the earth. Now this is just a general description of what it would look like for a godly man to hold an office of authority over people. Here's specifically a reference to the king. But any office of authority, if we read the text, a man ruling in justice, a man ruling in the fear of God, we might ask, who can rule in the fear of God except one who has the fear of God written upon his heart? A Christian. A Christian is the, is the only one really who could, who could fulfill this description. And then it's paralleled or, or compared to morning light when there are no clouds, a beautiful, cloudless, sunny morning, and then also rain coming down, giving life to the grass. These are great blessings to people. The point is... If you can get a godly man who walks in the fear of God into public office and he rules in that way as a Christian, that's only going to produce good for the people under him. It's a good thing. Christians should make the very best public office holders. And I, and I, I think most of us maybe have had some experience with at least Christian uh, police officers. I've known some, some Christian uh, police officers in our area that, that are... Um, I mean, they're model citizens. They, they are Christians in their office. I've sat and actually counseled uh, a couple from our church with a police officer in the room who called me to come and sit with him. And he sat there and was trying to explain the gospel and to counsel them as a, as a married couple. This is a police officer. This is not his job. But he's a Christian. So he's come into the situation and he says, I'm a Christian. I can't do any other except call a pastor and have him come and help, and I'm going to be here with you. That, that was a great uh, example of this. Gordon Knight's his name. Some of y'all might know Gordon. I don't know him beyond, much beyond that, but he seems like a very godly Christian man. Proverbs 20, verse 26. A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. Well, we've seen God's goal is to punish the wicked. Here we see that a wise king also punishes the wicked. Therefore, when you have a wise king, what does he do? He executes God's judgment on the wicked. He's doing what God wishes for him to do. It's not wrong for Christians to hold offices or positions of public authority. We do not abdicate all responsibility to the civil sphere because we belong to a heavenly kingdom. They're not mutually exclusive. We don't say, well, I can be a citizen of the civil kingdom or I can be in Christ's kingdom, but I can't do both. And that's not true. We, we are both. We don't get the option. We are both. Rather, because we belong to a heavenly kingdom, Christians have the very best input and the greatest wisdom to apply in the civil sphere. And so if that's your calling and gifting, by all means, whatever the Lord finds or whatever you, your hand finds to do, do it with all your might as unto the Lord. If, you, if somebody in here wants to run for public office, 
do it. The Christian as magistrate. But secondly, that has to be weighed with the magistrate as Christian. The magistrate as Christian. Christians may serve as civil magistrates at any level, but they do not leave their Christianity behind to do so. And this is where we, we run into a lot of problems in our day where, where men are, maybe they, they present themselves as strong Christians, but as soon as they get into office, all of a sudden you don't recognize them at all. They've, they've left their Christianity behind, as many men do in, any, in, in, in a lot of jobs. It's not, it's not just this one. You don't get to leave your Christianity behind. Your, their Christianity must be front and center of all that they say and do, as with any profession. The confession reads, in the management whereof, that means as, as they administer their office or in the, the management of their office, as they ought especially to maintain justice and peace, according to the wholesome laws of each kingdom and commonwealth, that will twist that into an assertion or a statement of faith, a Christian in civil office ought to especially maintain justice and peace according to the wholesome laws of each kingdom and commonwealth. Now we see there are these references to justice and peace. For a Christian, the words justice and peace mean sometimes a completely different thing than, than what's being paraded through our streets in, in our culture. A Christian defines justice and peace from the Word of God. And a Christian, as they serve in public office will maintain true justice and true peace among men, or that's what they ought to aspire to do. A Christian does not tow party lines for the sake of the party. A Christian upholds God's law regardless of party lines. They're a Christian first, not second, ever. The confession here points us to Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4. You can turn there. Psalm 82. Verses 3 and 4. The context here is God speaking to human rulers and He gives them their orders. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Now I think we could go elsewhere in Scripture and show that what God is giving to these, these rulers is nothing more or less than what all Christians ought to be doing. What is pure and undefiled religion before God? It's to take care of widows and orphans in their distress and to keep yourself undefiled from the world, right? That's, that's all Christians. He's saying if you're a magistrate, if you're a ruler of men, you do that as a ruler. You actually have a, a better place, a higher authority to execute true religion amongst a nation. And this is to be done according to the wholesome laws of each kingdom and commonwealth. Now let me define wholesome. Tending to promote health. Favorable to morals, religion, or prosperity. Conducive to public happiness, virtue, or peace. That's wholesome. A Christian does not get to set aside their Christianity or God's chief design for the civil magistrate just because something becomes a law. Immoral laws abound. Lawless laws abound and can be written. They, they, they can multiply lawless laws. A Christian in public office relinquishes his right to say, well, I'm just doing my job. 
simply because something becomes a law. It's not an excuse to go along with sin. A Christian in public office ought to be the very first to lead the way in overthrowing lawless laws and protecting the people under them from lawless laws and people who would enforce lawless laws. The Christian can be magistrate, but if he is so, he must be a Christian as he executes that office. Thirdly, the Christian and war. The Christian and war. A Christian may hold civil office. May a Christian engage in war. Many of the Anabaptists of the 17th century and today would say, no, a Christian cannot be engaged in war. We confess, reading again from the confession, so for that end, justice and peace, they, this could be the Christian magistrate or it could just be Christians in general, may lawfully, again, according to God's law and commandments in God's Word, now under the New Testament, wage war upon just and necessary occasions. Christians may wage war upon just and necessary occasions. Now why is this even a question? Most of us have never even considered why this, why we would even discuss this. Well, the Bible says you shall not commit murder. And some people have taken that to mean that it is never under any circumstance lawful to take any human life for any reason. But God's law also requires us to love our neighbors as ourself. That prohibition, you shall not murder, also implies the opposite. It implies that we will protect the lives of our neighbors and ourselves, which sometimes requires violence. And violence at its grandest scale is known as war. The Scripture reference here is Luke 3.14. Turn there with me. Luke chapter 3. Verse 14. Soldiers. They're speaking to Jesus. Soldiers also asked Him, And we, what shall we do? And He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Well, that's an interesting reference. These are soldiers of the Roman army, the, the nation that is ruling over the Jews at this point. Jesus does not say, quit your job as soldiers. Don't you know that it's unlawful to be a soldier, to be in the military? He does not command them to quit their jobs. He admonishes them to execute their duties justly and to be content with their pay, which was in many cases extracted from the Jewish people. Now what is the chief job of a soldier? Historically speaking, why do you need soldiers? To fight in war. That's why they exist. So we would deny the claim that all war is sinful. Yes, war, all war is the product of or exists because of sin. But that does not mean that war in itself is necessarily sinful. Can or should a Christian engage in 
any war? I, I might should better say just any old war? No. Should Christians support just any old war? No. Must Christians, in order to be good citizens, support the troops simply because they're the troops? I don't think so. No. I oftentimes think that our knee-jerk reaction to support the troops is rooted deep down in the fact that we really feel sorry for these men and women, many of them who have been coaxed into unqualified obedience to godless superiors because they've been promised free college. And they live in a society, in a world that treats as blue-collar scum anyone who doesn't have a college education. The, the, chief, the chief end of man is to get a college degree. And so what, do the, what, what does the military promise you? We'll give you money for college if you'll sign on this line. And what do you do when you sign on that line? You commit to unqualified obedience to whatever they say. The best time to support the troops, I would say, is before they swear in by telling them, stop what you're doing and go back home. Now, does that mean that a Christian can never engage in war? Of course not. But what this does is it protects us from having to engage in a war that is unjust. And this question of, of what is a just war has been tossed around historically. Five questions are typically asked in determining if it's a just war. Is it a, a just cause for war? Has it been declared by a legitimate authority? Is it being waged with the right intentions? Is there a reasonable chance for success? Are the means of war comparable to the wrong that's been suffered? If not, it's not a just war. The Christian says, I can't fight that war. That's not just. If you feel obligated to register your sons for the draft, which is required by our nation. I didn't know that. As far as, I'm as far as I know, I've never, been, I've never been registered. I went to look for my name and it wasn't there. Oops, it's too late now. I didn't know. It is required by our nation when our sons turn, I believe, 18 to register for the selective service. If you feel obligated to do that, to register for the draft, the selective service, be prepared to make the decision to submit a conscientious objection in the case of an unjust war. And this church will stand behind you 100%. It's an unjust war. We're not fighting that. We serve God, not men. We'll stand behind you. If you feel obligated to register your daughters for the draft, find another church. We don't do that. That's not happening. Now, now they've talked about this. Um, it's actually been in discussion for a long time. Uh, it's, not, it's not possible right now. What is very interesting, if you go to the website for the Selective Service, um, basically any man under the age of 18, or, or at the age of 18 up to, I forget what the age is, 24, 25, uh, maybe more, is required to, to register. Are you, are you handicapped? Register. Are you sick? Register. Can you, can you walk? Then you got to register. I mean, across the board. If you were born a man but now you are a transgender female, in other words, you consider yourself a female, but you were born a man, you got to register for the draft. You know why? Because you're a man. If you were born a female, and now you consider yourself a transgender male, 
In other words, you're a woman, but you call yourself a man. You don't have to register. Why? Because the government knows you're not a man. All that's an aside. We have to obey God rather than men. It's not wrong. War's not wrong. There, there are some times that wars need to be fought. But they ought to be fought justly. And we serve God who is above human rulers. Christians may participate at every level of civil and political life, but they may not under any circumstance leave their Christianity behind to do so. That's paragraph two. Paragraph three, the Christian's obligation in civil affairs. Obligation. We have, number one, an obligation to God. Number two, an obligation to submission. And number three, an obligation to prayer. There are ways in which the Christian may participate in civil duties, but also which he or she may choose not to participate. But there are also areas of obligation, areas of duty, in which Christians do not have the option, but rather we have God-given moral imperatives, obligations. You ought to do this. Number one, we have an obligation to God. This is our first and ultimate obligation. And this paragraph begins by restating what was said before. Civil magistrates being set up by God for the ends aforesaid. The civil, jurisdictional, authority, structures of cities, states, nations, etc. has been set up by God. This structure has been set up by God to display His glory and achieve the public good by punishing evildoers and encouraging and defending well-doers. All of that's restated. This has been set up by God. And because this has been set up by God, and because it is... God, to whom our ultimate allegiance belongs, then we do have an obligation under God to relate to civil magistrates in a certain way. I said this last week. We don't have the option of disassociating the two, God and civil government, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of Christ. Why? Because we exist as citizens in both. We are the connection between them because we are citizens of both. That means that there will always be some association, even if only external, between the rule of God and the rule of the civil magistrate. This association should be a palpable, conscious association for the Christian because we are aware of what God's Word says on the matter. It's true for everybody. Everybody, it doesn't change if you're not a Christian. But the Christian ought to, ought to always have the Word of God in their mind and what it says about civil participation and civil obligation, a Christian recognizes it and we confess it. There is a relationship. We have an obligation under God to fulfill our obligations to the civil magistrate. And we should always keep that in mind. My civil obedience or disobedience is obedience or disobedience to God. Again, not in a direct one-to-one mirror, mirror parallel. Obedience to one is not always obedience to the other. Disobedience to one is not always disobedience to the other. Sometimes the lines crisscross, but there's always an association because God is at the top. So we, we begin with our obligation to God. Secondly, then we have an obligation, in light of that, an obligation to submission. Obligation to submission. Under God, and in order to fulfill our obligations to Him, as Supreme Lord and King of all the world, we have an obligation to submit to civil magistrates. This paragraph says, civil magistrates being set up by God for the ends aforesaid, subjection in all lawful things commanded by them ought to be yielded by us in the Lord. 
not only for wrath, but for conscience sake. Now, I'm just going to point out again, this is not an, uh, an unqualified blind submission. You just read it in the language. Subjection in all lawful things commanded by them ought to be yielded by us. The question of lawfulness is always foremost in our thoughts because our ultimate obligation is to God and God's law, God's commandments. Our tendency should lean toward submission on the condition of lawlessness. In other words, we want to obey lawful commands. That's our tendency. The, the picture that came into my mind was uh, motocross racers or, or even the BMX racers at, at the starting gate. And there's a, a little bar that's flipped up over their front wheel. But they're all leaning, ready to, to go. And you've probably seen the videos where some of them, they get a little antsy and they flip over the handlebars because they're leaning so hard. The, their tendency is to go on the condition that this bar drops. That, for the Christian, that's our tendency. We want to submit. We want to obey on the condition that the commands are lawful. We're not afraid of that. We don't look at the government with, a, with an eye of suspicion uh, with regard to our submission. We want to. On the other hand, very often we do look at our government with, with, an, with the other eye of, of, of suspicion because of the things that they do. But we're always watching for lawfulness. It's almost like we're asking them, give me a lawful command and watch how well we obey it. Watch how good citizens, good of citizens we can be. This kind of submission ought to be yielded. That's a divine ought. Why? Because our obligation is ultimately to God who has established this. It ought to be yielded by us. When we talk about submission in the home, Paul, Paul commands uh, wives, wives submit to your own husbands. And you might remember this, that word submit, if I'm correct, is in the middle voice, which means you act on yourself. So the command is given to wives. Wives, you act on yourself. You bring yourself under submission. You yield it. Paul never says, husbands, Make sure your wives are submitting. He never says that because that, that's not your job. Your job is to love her as Christ loved the church. It's her job to yield submission, to willingly bring herself under that headship. That's the same idea here. It ought to be yielded by us. We ought to freely offer submission to our authorities, or at least we ought to want that. It's not to be extorted or coerced or forced. Our submission to lawful things should be freely yielded by Christian citizens. If we had a situation where a government was, was pouring out godly commands and laws, there would be a, a certain type of person who says, well, I just don't want to do it because they're telling me. Because it's an authority. Uh, some people just buck against authority, period. If the government hadn't said anything, well, maybe they would go about doing those things. They just don't want to submit. A Christian in that situation ought to be the very best citizen. You've given us godly laws. You're ruling in prosperity. You're ruling for the, the, the good of the nation, the well-being of the people. We want to submit to that. It should be yielded up by us. And again, we have this phrase, yielded by us in the Lord. Children are to uh, obey their parents. In the Lord. 
widows are, young widows are free to marry only in the Lord. What, what does that phrase assume? It assumes that there, is, that there will be a full compliance to the commands of God, that God will still be the, the ruler in, in that particular area. If it's a, a widow, she has to marry a Christian man, a man marry in the Lord. When the commands of God must be broken, or the rightful spheres established by God are being ignored, then it's not possible to obey in the Lord. So then we can't obey. Our, our obedience is an obedience in the Lord. We, we would love to yield obedience in the Lord, but if, we, if you have to take out that phrase, in the Lord, then i got to say, I can't obey that. My obedience has to be an obedience in the Lord. And we do this not only for wrath, but for conscience sake, which is taken from Romans 13, verses 5 to 7. You can turn there and we'll read that passage again. Romans 13, verses 5 to 7. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So we see here, God's wrath is administered by civil magistrates. Do we want to be punished under God's wrath in these temporal ways? No. Then, then render your obedience in all things lawful and in the Lord. Not, not just for that. Nobody wants to be punished. It's easy to obey just because you don't want it to be punished. But also for conscience sake. In other words, our consciences ought to be ready to render obedience. It's not only that we don't want to get punished. We render obedience because we're convinced that under God we ought to and we want to. My conscience tells me, render that obedience and these things lawful because we want to obey God. So we have an obligation to submission in, in, with those qualifications. And then thirdly, we have an obligation to prayer. The obligation to prayer. And we ought to make supplications and prayers for kings and all that are in authority, that under them we may live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. This is taken directly from 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. We can turn there. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Remember, Paul's giving instructions on how the church ought to be ordered, and the things that ought to be happening in the church. He says, first of all then I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And then Peter also says in 1 Peter 2.17, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And the best way that we can honor anyone is to pray for them to pray for our government officials, pray for those who are in authority over us. Over us. And according to Timothy, or Paul's line of thinking to Timothy, by praying for them, we help ourselves. We help ourselves. And, and I don't think it's wrong to think of it that way. It's not uh, simply self-serving because we know that a nation prospers 
when its rulers rule in uprightness and when rulers rule in such a way that allows the people of God to live peaceful and quiet lives, dignified in every way, when that's allowed to happen freely, the whole nation flourishes when the people of God flourish. And that is the goal of our prayers, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And this should be our aim in life. Uh, we addressed this text a little last week. Our goal is not that we be elevated above all other peoples, that we, we be treated with special treatment, that we be uh, preferred above other religions necessarily. We pray for them that we can just live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We pray that they would rule in such a way that we would be left alone and that godliness could go forward and flourish. Remember that it was the great hope and belief of the Jews that the Messiah would come and set up an earthly kingdom where they, God's chosen nation, would be set up above other nations of the world and treated with preferment above others. And Christ tells them that they were wrong in these expectations. He did come and establish His kingdom on the earth. But His kingdom is a kingdom that is not of this world. His kingdom is within you. In order to see and enter this kingdom, a person has to be born from heaven, regenerated, born from above. Christ's kingdom is a kingdom of the age to come, and yet it has broken into this age in the hearts of people. What they expected is not what Christ brought. It's no less a fulfillment of all that Christ promised. So, spiritually speaking, Christ's people do get special preferment in the present age though it's not a preferment in the things of this age. Christ's people now, because of the establishment of His kingdom, we get to taste the heavenly gift. We share in the Holy Spirit. We taste the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the age to come. We have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Even now, we get all of that in the present age. Spiritual blessings. At the same time, we don't expect special treatment above others in areas of temporal or civil concern. Very often, it's the complete opposite. As we've seen throughout history, it's been that way. Christians are, are treated uh, less than other groups are treated. That's very often the case. Following in the steps of Christ, the church often suffers at the hands of wicked men. Even in suffering, the spiritual benefits of a spiritual kingdom cannot be taken away from us. They are ours in Christ. We rejoice that our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly expect our Savior. And until that time, we trust He'll give us the grace needed to shine His lights in the world, even as citizens in the civil arena. I would add to this before I pray. Uh, I mentioned this. Uh, I think most of the men have heard this. The most recent Free Grace broadcaster from Chapel Library is on church and state. That's the the theme of it, and I would recommend it to read. I think, I hope that when you read it, you'll say, this sounds like what Paul said. And when you hear me, you say, this sounds like what the Free Grace Broadcast is. I, I think that we're in perfect agreement. Um, but you'll see that, that, that this, this idea of church and state has not, it has been misrepresented in our generation and for a couple generations uh, by, by many who profess to be Christians. And there is a Christian way to view this that... Um, Sometimes it, it, it does not always allow us the opportunity to just revolt. Sometimes that's what we want to do. 
Um, we, we don't always have that opportunity. On the other hand, there are situations where uh, I think we could be in, in our nation where we would say, we're not revolting, they revolted. The people at the top started the revolution. Um, now, where, where you go from there, I, I don't, I don't uh, want to speculate or definitely don't want to lead the way. But um, it's not as clear-cut as some people say. Some people say, well, just, just obey whatever they say. And the other people who say, well, let's just, just don't get involved in any of it. Just stay out of it. That's, that's not our fight. It's not that simple. It's not that clear-cut. Christians have been wrestling with this for a long time because God's people have suffered at the hands of unjust rulers from the very beginning. So it requires a lot of thought and, and uh, study. Like I said, I would, I would recommend that at least as a, an introduction. It's short um, and it's, it's uh, simple to read. Um, let's pray and then we'll stand and sing one more song together.